Nuclear Hot Seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat, it's the bomb. Still calm and bienvenue. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Kristen Iverson, author of Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats. She gives us the lowdown on the state of Colorado's attempt to fob off Rocky Flats, the Manhattan Project-era highly radioactive site, as a wildlife refuge, as well as context for understanding the history of Rocky Flats and the situation faced by residents and would-be hikers. We'll also have an update on the ever-onward fix of the NuclearHotSeat.com website, plus our regular numbnuts of the week, activist shout-outs, Nuclear Regulatory Commission duck and cover report, and more information on the true impact of nuclear than the Boy Scouts learn in order to get their Nuclear Science Merit Badge, all of which will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 22nd, 2015, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Well, somebody must have lit the anti-nuclear fire under mainstream media in Southern California, because in the past week there have been two major investigative reports coming out of NBC stations in San Diego and Los Angeles. The San Diego station investigated secret talks about the condition of the land where the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station sits and details how nuclear material was handled at facility since the 1980s. Those involved with secret negotiations included the U.S. Navy, which owns the property, the U.S. Marines, whose base surrounds the property, and Southern California Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric, both of which hold the lease to the property. Key findings include attempts to keep documents on toxic radiation a secret, the consistent referring to San Onofre State Beach in internal memos as, I hate to use this phrase, but I'm simply quoting, Jap Mesa, because apparently Geiger counter readings in some locations are so high that the site is reminiscent of Ground Zero at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Radioactive debris has been left on the beach. Radiation levels at beachfront property is so alarming that in places, inspectors from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission refused to perform routine radiation surveys. And trailers housing Southern California Edison employees had elevated readings. There has been a call for third-party investigations to thoroughly inspect the tainted 25-acre parcel at San Onofre, and it is being referred to now as San Onofre Gate put a hashtag in front of it. 
San Diego County's Board of Supervisors, in an historic move, voted four to nothing to support legislation that would remove and relocate outside of the San Diego region the spent fuel stored at the decommissioned San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. Spent nuclear fuel has no place in San Diego County, according to Supervisor Diane Jacob. Of course, where is there a place? And the Los Angeles NBC station published a two-part report on the Santa Susana Field Lab. Scene of a partial meltdown, 13 fuel rods, in 1959 on the Rocketdyne property, which remained hidden for more than 20 years until after Three Mile Island in 1979. This report is the result of exactly one year of investigative reporting, but was unable to secure interviews with any of the responsible parties, including the U.S. Department of Energy, NASA, Boeing, and KB Home, which is a partner in a housing development less than two miles from the Santa Susana Field Lab. More tellingly, they spoke with cancer survivors who had lived in the local area and grew up there, and also some of the last remaining living workers who were on site when the accident happened. The Manhattan Project, the World War II smackdown that created the nuclear bombs that dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and gave birth to the entire nuclear era, continues to bite us on the nose. A fire smoldering since 2010 underneath a landfill north of St. Louis could reach radioactive waste from the Manhattan Project in as little as three months, according to a report released by Missouri's Attorney General. The extent of the contamination in terms of severity and location at the landfill remains largely unknown, but researchers have concluded that it is likely far worse than previously thought. Also impacting St. Louis, the Manhattan Project experiments were being carried out at the same time that the only uranium plant in the country was located in St. Louis, and the activities there ended up contaminating Coldwater Creek, where cancer clusters continue to be reported to this very day. Time for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission duck <laughs> and cover report. At Palo Verde in Arizona, notification of an unusual event, which is not that unusual, but this one is, because of a rapid combustion of a load center breaker, a.k.a. an explosion. A visible observation of rapid combustion and resultant charring, a burned area, of the breaker enclosure and housing. <laughs> Michigan continues its double whammy as the Fermi 2 reactor in Frenchtown Township, Michigan, experienced a manual scram, that's a hands-on shutdown, after a problem with the system used to cool auxiliary equipment. According to spokesman Guy Ceruyo from DTE Energy Company, essentially, it stopped working. <laughs> Also on September 16, Palisades in Michigan, on Lake Michigan, experienced a turbine trip caused by a power supply failure. <laughs> also on the 16th, Surrey in Virginia experienced an electrical problem that caused it by an emergency diesel generator. <laughs> on the 18th, there were problems at Fitzpatrick in New York where the doors were stuck open in secondary containment. Entergy, the company that owns and operates Fitzpatrick, is considering shutting the plant down because it is unprofitable. 
While at the same time, it is considering the closure of its Pilgrim plant near Boston because it requires costly safety improvements, which Entergy is loath to cough up because, hey, who says nukes have to be safe? <laughs> and London-based insurance market Lloyd's has found that Washington, D.C. is the seventh most at-risk city to potential nuclear accidents among 301 cities that they studied. Nuclear accidents are the 12th most serious potential threat to D.C., according to Lloyd's, lower than a stock market crash or a human pandemic, but higher than heat waves or terrorism. And with that look at nuclear reactors, that's this week's Nuclear Regulatory Commission duck (coughs) and cover report. From the archives, a good article on radioactive leaks found at 75% of U.S. nuke sites can be found from AP, originally posted on June 21st, 2011. Oh, shut up already. A little bit of good news. 85-year-old Sister Megan Rice and two fellow Catholic peace activists have been resentenced to time served for their peaceful protest at a storage bunker at the Y-12 National Security Complex that held much of the nation's bomb-grade uranium. On Tuesday, September 15, U.S. District Judge Amul Thapar ordered two years of unsupervised release for Sister Rice Michael Wally and Greg Borcha Obed. During that time, the activists are prohibited from going onto the grounds of any nuclear facility. The activists asked the judge to reduce the amount of restitution they were ordered to pay for damage at YK, nearly $53,000, but he denied that request. If I were the defendants, I would ask for an itemized list, and until then, where's the crowdfunding campaign? Actually, the three should charge for having discovered such a lapse in security at a national security site. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's a week. I am so mad at the New York Times, I don't know whether they should be embarrassed or ashamed. In an article in today's paper, which really should have been an op-ed and labeled as such, but they put it in the science section, and it's labeled, When Radiation Isn't the Real Risk, and it comes slam dunk out on the side of hormesis theory, and gee, isn't linear no-threshold old science, bad science, bad old, this is America, nothing's supposed to get old. And science isn't supposed to get old because new science is better science. Oh, screw you. This article first posited that more damage and more deaths were caused by the evacuation from Fukushima than radiation ever has or ever will. The unattributed article even wrote, even among Fukushima workers, the number of additional cancer cases in coming years is expected to be so low as to be undetectable, a blip impossible to discern against the statistical background noise. Considering the way Japan has already rigged the fact that they're not taking into account radiation risks and problems, they're threatening doctors with loss of hospital privileges if they report on any illnesses connected to radiation, that according to Dr. Helen Caldicott, it will take between 12 and 15 years before hard tumors and cancer cases even start to appear, at which case nobody will be looking for them anyway, and they certainly won't attribute them back to Fukushima. 
But times just kept going with the International Atomic Energy Agency's party line. Even worse, the only person, the only quote-unquote expert who is interviewed in this entire article is Dr. Mohan Doss, a medical physicist who is one of the three petitioners to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to do away with the linear no-threshold model, which states that any dose of radiation is impactful to our health, has a negative impact on our health, and that the effect is cumulative based on how much we get exposed to. Small dose, big dose makes no difference at all, adds up, which has been the standard for the last several decades. It has been reviewed and passed muster with scientists in all the iterations of the Beer Report, the Beer 7 Report, it's up to now, Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation. But does the great gray lady of the New York Times even let linear no threshold get an airing? Does it quote even once Dr. John Goffman? Ian Fairley, whose recent studies have shown the effect of radiation on children living near nuclear reactors? Dr. Helen Caldica, who can cite chapter and verse, and so many others. No. All they do is quote this Mohan Doss, who claims that at Fukushima, fear of radiation killed more people than radiation. This was a propaganda piece. It should have been labeled as an op-ed and placed there. And if you're wondering how they got away with it, Go online and check Linear No Threshold Model. Check Wikipedia and see how the entry has been absolutely subverted to be a clarion call for hermesis as opposed to an honest explanation of what LNT is all by itself. Maybe, just maybe, this article is the reason why the Nuclear Regulatory Commission decided to give more time for comments on the Hormesis proposal so that they could rally the troops and whip up the froth and get their people going to make more comments, more stupid comments, based on false, lying, propagandistic non-science. The battleground is radiation. Whoever controls the interpretation of what radiation does to our bodies is the one who controls the entire discourse internationally on what nuclear is, what it does, and who can get away with what. And that's why you, New York Times, for this heinous piece of non-reporting, for this piece of propagandistic feces, you are this week's Nuclear hot Looking north across the border to Canada, where members of Congress from Michigan announced a new effort on Monday to prevent the burial of Canadian nuclear waste near the Lake Huron shore, calling for a study by an agency that represents both nations in boundary water disputes. The legislation will invoke a 1909 treaty allowing either nation to require a review by an international joint commission when differences arise over their shared waterways. One of these senators, Hoon Yung Hopgood, a Democrat from Michigan, is urging Secretary of State John Kerry to become involved in the fight against this plan to bury nuclear waste near Kincardine, less than one mile away from the shores of Lake Huron. What is ironic about Canada's actions is that in 1986, the U.S. Department of Energy considered locating a nuclear waste site in northern Vermont. At the time, the Canadian government strongly opposed the effort, 
arguing that such a site could pose dangers to human health and the environment through the contamination of Canada's lakes, rivers, and underground streams. Honoring their request, the U.S. Department of Energy agreed to exclude the Vermont location from consideration. Now, nearly 30 years later, the shoe is on the other foot. Except that Canada is ignoring every request, every demand, every plea to bag the construction of a comparable nuclear waste dump near the shores of Lake Huron for the Bruce Nuclear Generating Station. Out of Japan comes word that the U.S. West Coast is being continuously exposed to Fukushima radioactive releases. According to a report put out by Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, Typhoon Etal, which hit eastern Japan September 9th and 10th, created more flooding than has occurred in the last 50 years. And TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, admitted that it failed to contain massive amounts of radioactivity at Fukushima Daiichi. According to Gunderson, an extraordinary amount of radioactive cesium, strontium, and other isotopes spread hundreds of miles from the site. Rain flooded that radioactive material to new locations. Areas of Japan previously decontaminated have now become recontaminated. This flooding is a significant health risk. And for the next 300 years, typhoon events like Etal will recur and will redeposit radioactivity on clean areas until all the radioactive releases during the Fukushima Daiichi catastrophe are finally washed away into the Pacific Ocean. This is an ongoing tragedy for the people continuously exposed to such radioactive releases both in Japan and on the west coast of the United States. This past July, at a sewage plant located in Fukushima Prefecture, over 1,000 becquerels per kilogram of iodine-131 was detected in dry sewage sludge. The significance is that iodine-131 is a marker for a fresh nuclear event and has a half-life of only eight days, meaning it is radiologically active for 80 days. The samples were collected from July 9th through 29th. No word as to what created this fresh sampling of iodine-131. And finally, according to Dr. Timothy Mousseau of the University of South Carolina, who is an expert on mutations in the biosphere from radiation exposure, that big old wolf fish that was caught in Japan was not a radioactive mutant. It was just a big, old, ugly fish. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, when it comes to the Nuclear Hot Seat website fix, there's good news and not so good news. First, the good. We have begun the process of loading in audio episodes and look to have at least the most recent months up by next week. The bad news is that it turns out the database has viruses and we can't use it. So the support material for each week's show is going to take a while to recreate. And the media archive appears to be lost as well. That's where I have all of the pictures and links to the videos that I use on the site. So it's going to take time to identify and reload visuals to go with each episode. Still, you'll be able to hear them even if there's nothing to see, and they will be searchable. Very soon this will take place, possibly by next week. For those of you who have donated already to the Nuclear Hot Seat Let's Fix the Website Fund in order to cover the expenses of this fix, 
Thank you so very much. We could not have even attempted this without your generous support. Now, we're still stuck at the $200 mark. That's $200 shy of the total amount we need to pay the techies for doing this work. We are taking the opportunity to not only fix the website as it was before, but to create a better-looking, more functional, more searchable, and definitely even more secure website. We still have a temporary landing page up at NuclearHotSeat.com where you can access links to recent shows, and that is also where you'll find a secure link to make a donation, either through PayPal or directly from your credit or debit card. As I said, we are almost at our goal to be able to pay for this website fix, but your donation is still needed to get us over the top. So what do you say? Let's go for it. If you have ever thought of donating to Nuclear Hot Seat, please do it now. Any amount is appreciated, and no amount is insignificant. And I want to thank those individuals who signed up in the last week to give monthly donations of $5. It's about the same as a cup of Starbucks, and it really does help me meet the monthly fees that go along with running this site. Every donation, no matter the size, is a sign of your caring about the show. And that alone helps keep Nuclear Hot Seat and me going. Please, don't wait. We are so very, very close. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com to find the secure, yes, very secure, donate link. If you prefer not to donate online, email me for a snail mail address to send your donation. That would be info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Know that I continue to be deeply touched by the generosity of you, the listeners, and by the many kind comments that I have gotten in this process. It really serves as a deep well of nourishment for me when sometimes I look at this show and I go, why am I doing this? But I know why I'm doing it. So whatever you can do to help me keep doing it, thank you. Last week, Numbnuts of the Week went to the state of Colorado for Rocky Flats, the radioactively contaminated Manhattan Project era site that manufactured plutonium triggers for atomic bombs. Colorado is attempting to turn this extremely contaminated area, extremely radioactive area, into a wildlife refuge. I guess that's because Mother Nature can't sue you for damages and nobody's checking groundhogs for cancer. But the issue at Rocky Flats is much larger and more important than a numbnuts of the week can convey. So this week, I turned to Kristen Iverson, author of Full Battery Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats. She gives us the lowdown on Colorado's history with the site, the actual levels of contamination there, issues faced by the locals, including what nearby veterinarians have to say about cancer rates in pets, And Kristen gives us a sense of how we can respond in a way that has a chance to help the people who live and work in the area. Now, unfortunately, this interview got caught in a bit of the recent Skype meltdown. So at places, there's some background noise and occasionally some minor breakup in the audio. But I trust that you'll be able to catch all of it because it's well worth the listen. 
Kristen Iverson, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, people may not be completely familiar with what Rocky Flats is, where it is, and what took place there. Give us a little bit of background as to what the site is about. Well, Rocky Flats was really the heart of the Cold War effort here in the United States. Uh, between 1952 and 1992, at Rocky Flats, we produced more than 70,000 plutonium triggers or pits for nuclear weapons, essentially the heart of every nuclear weapon produced in this country. Uh, it was done secretly. The public was not aware of what was going on. Even most of the workers were not fully aware of what was going on. There was extensive radioactive and toxic contamination in the environment, in the air, and the water, and the soil, and the problems related to that contamination and the secrecy around that, uh, around the plant and around the contamination continue to the present day. It's been a very, very uh, controversial site uh, with very little information available to the public. I understand that the site is not in operation now. When was it shut down and what has been done to clean it up, quote unquote? Well, the site uh, was declared clean in 2006, but I, I would say that certainly uh, many people, including people involved in the, in the cleanup process, people who worked at the plant, people who live in the area, they would call it not so much a cleanup as a cover-up in the sense that high levels of contamination remain on site. Out of that 1,300-acre uh, site, a large portion of it is still closed and will be closed forever to the public. However, the rest of it is not closed or projected to open for public use and access. And the contamination that remains on site, you know, given the fact that plutonium has a half-life of 24,100 years, this is contamination that's not going to go away anytime soon, and it's certainly an ongoing and will continue to be an ongoing concern. How does or does the weather in that area of Colorado impact the radiation and the contamination? Anyone who lives in Colorado, particularly in that area, just outside of Denver, nine miles down the road from Boulder, it's a high plateau right next to the mountains, and the weather can be quite severe, quite harsh. The winds are very strong. These Chinook winds come down from the mountains, a very uh, fast-moving winds. When I worked at Rocky Flats, it was not uncommon for people to have their windshields blown out from that wind. There's a lot of snow, obviously. There's a lot of rain. And any time we have a major weather event, for example, two years ago we had floods in Colorado. People might remember those floods. It was pretty dramatic. The site was heavily flooded. And the flooding was so severe that two of the Department of Energy measuring stations were knocked out. So we'll never know exactly how much contamination came off the site at that time. But people who live in the area had to worry about um, contamination in the water, in the soil. People were very concerned about sediment transfer because plutonium attaches. It's heavy, it's heavy and it attaches to sediment and it comes off that site. And then, of course, when the floodwaters evaporate, that sediment is either resuspended in the air or it remains in the soil. It's an ongoing concern for people who live in the area. 
In terms of people living in the area, has there been a migration away from it because of contamination concerns? Does it have a lower population, perhaps, than it did when you were growing up in the area? Frankly, this is the one thing that concerns me the most about what's happening at Rocky Flats. Uh, I grew up right next to the site. I worked at the plant. When I was a kid and a teenager in the 70s, when very little was known about the plant, even at that point, the, the area was a high-growth area because it's, it's beautiful country. It's right between Denver and Boulder, beautiful views. There's always been a very strong real estate push in that area. However, what's happening now, even though we know how much contamination is on site and we know or should know, be very aware of the, of the dangers and the risk of living near the site, nonetheless, a great deal of development has happened and uh, the area is kind of experiencing burst of home development right now for various reasons. If you drive out near the area at the present time, there are new home developments all over the place right up to the border of the plant site and builders are under no legal obligation to tell potential home buyers that the land is contaminated or potentially contaminated. There's no question that contamination has been found in neighborhoods around the area as recently as two years ago. So people who are moving into that area, buying these new houses, they have no idea what happened at Rocky Flats in the past and why it continues to be a present concern and, and danger. There are no signs, there's no information available for people. And of course, a lot of these people moving into these big new homes are families with young children, and young children are, are the most vulnerable. The only thing that I uh, notice, others have noticed, is that houses tend to be a little less expensive out there because builders know the land contaminated, that it's a risky venture. And so a lot of people who purchase houses out there think that they're getting a, a great deal and uh, compared to the you know, size of the house that they might pay in downtown Denver, for example, or something like that. Is there any kind of activist movement or neighborhood awareness movement to bring up the issue of the contamination or possible contamination so that the neighbors and especially the people moving in who are new learn about it? This, I think, is something that's happening now is very exciting and it makes me feel very hopeful about the future of what might happen at the site. Just in the last two to three years, there's been kind of a new wave of activism of young people protesting for various reasons. Um, a couple things that have happened, for example, there's a new dog park that was just put out near the site with all this new housing development, and local veterinarians are reporting higher rates of cancer in dogs. And these dogs have cancer, many of them have cancer in the paws, in the feet. Now, that's very uncommon, and it's very likely that the dogs that are taken out to the site and they're walking around, you know, playing around in the soil, that that's where they're picking it up. So the dog park was uh, one area of activism. Some people who have moved out there bought their houses and then discovered, you know, what really happened out there. They're angry. Others are angry. There are people standing next to the highway, standing out on the road or near the road, 
uh, to Rocky Flats uh, with signs now, and uh, it's been probably a couple of decades since we've seen that level of activism, but that's what's happening on the weekends out there. And if someone happens to drive by and see those protesters and stop and pick up some information, then they'll get an idea of what's, of what's happened out at that site. I know here in California with realtors that once they become aware of a problem with a piece of real estate, with a house, somebody died there, or there was a violent act there, or there was contamination there of any sort, they're required by law to inform any potential buyer of the negatives of whatever happened on that site. Does Colorado, to your knowledge, have a comparable law, or has there been any attempt to bring this in a conscious way and in a responsible way to the attention of the real estate community? Well, I think the real estate community has not been helpful, <laughs> frankly, uh, with a lot of what's going on out there, although there are some real estate um, agents that I've spoken to who feel quite ethically responsible and do tell people what happened. But one of the problems is that even though for decades, going all the way back to when I was a little kid, people have reported illnesses, health issues related, they feel, that are related to Rocky Flats, things like there is a high level of cancer, leukemia, brain tumors, lots and lots of thyroid issues. Um, we saw these illnesses in, in my neighborhood when I was growing up. They continue to the present day. And studies over the years, going all the way back to Dr. Carl Johnson in the 1980s, have proven that these levels of illness are there. However, the Department of Energy and now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is managing a good portion of the site, continue to maintain that there is no link between these health issues and these kinds of uh, medical issues. There's never been any public health monitoring of people who live near the site, grew up next to the site, live there to the present day. There's no hotline or information, anything available for people who are experiencing these health effects and sometimes quite severe health effects. And, and I have to say one of the more distressing aspects of, of writing about Rocky Flats and, and what's happened since my book came out a couple of years ago I was aware, of course, of many stories of people who are ill, but ever since my book came out, I have just been flooded with emails from people who are ill or their animals are ill, their horses, um, there's still cattle out there, some farm and ranch property and that sort of thing. And I hope with time, with continued activism, with people calling attention to what's actually happening out here at the site and has been going on for quite a long time, that our government will begin to take, you know, to pay attention, and we can have some kind of public health monitoring and resources available. At the very minimum, people who are contemplating purchasing a house out in that area, or taking a hike, or walking, you know, uh, on the um, Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge, if and when it opens to the public, they should have the right to be informed of any potential risk. There is something called the Rocky Flats Cold War Museum that's planned for the area. This doesn't sound like something that's going to encompass an activist perspective on what happened there. What is this museum supposed to be and how well are plans for that going? The Rocky Flats Cold War Museum, to my mind, is an extremely important museum, not just to Colorado, to Denver and Boulder and, and the people who live around Rocky Flats, 
but nationally and internationally, it's such an important story. It's important historically for what happened, what we did there, and how uh, it really, uh, as I said, represents the heart of our Cold War effort. Environmentally, it's extremely important. Um, everything that happened there, the environmental violations, the FBI raid in 1989, the grand jury investigation, the federal grand jury, all of that history, political and environmental, is very, very important. And the story has been suppressed. The story has been hidden for so long. The story has not been available to the public. So I think that this museum is very important you know, for all sorts of reasons. And, as you say, <laughs> of course, it's a very controversial museum. There are some people, and I worked at Rocky Flats. I understand the perspective here. But there are many people who were proud of the work that they did at Rocky Flats. Maybe they got sick, maybe they didn't, but they were willing to make the kind of sacrifice that they felt was necessary, and they would like the Cold War Museum, the Rocky Flats Cold War Museum, to represent a kind of a patriotic take on the story, and maybe we can leave some of that other stuff out. <laughs> and then there are others who'd like to see a broader perspective. Certainly all of the activism that happened at the plant is a very important part of the story, um, not just for the people who were in, involved in the activism, including people like Allen Ginsberg, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt. Oh, my gosh. Scores and scores of, of Catholic nuns, for example, Buddhist monks, housewives and students, and, you know, thousands of people protested out at Rocky Flats and continue, you know, as we just discussed. And their story is very important, too. The worker story is important. The activist story is important. The, the legal and political story is important. And yet, the Cold War Museum Board seems unable to, so far, really come together to create a museum that is meaningful and that will endure. It's, they've had trouble getting funding. It looked for a while like the Department of Energy was going to fund the museum or partially fund the museum. That looks like that is uh, questionable at this point. And it, it's, you know, I just hope that at some point we can move forward. Another problem with the museum is, is where will it be located? One problem to my mind, if they locate it on the site right next to the refuge that they hope to open, well, the museum itself would be located on contaminated land, and it seems that that might not be a great idea. So I would like to see the museum located in a place where it's safe and healthy, to go visit and open to the public and a museum that tells the full story of what happened at Rocky Flats and the ongoing issues to the present day. And you made reference to a committee or a group that is attempting to get this off the ground, which raises the question, who will decide what information is or is not included should this museum get built? That's a really important question. Who should decide? We should decide. It should be people like you and me, like, like, like your listeners, uh, like anyone um, who's interested in this topic and concerned about the future. It shouldn't just be the Department of Energy or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or uh, the Rocky Flats Stewardship Council, which is a council that is supposed to oversee ongoing environmental monitoring of the plant and some of the other political considerations that go along with that. That's been a very controversial board. In fact, I might mention there are a couple of, couple of openings on that board right now, and we're hoping we get some good people there and, and continue to keep this information available to the public and involve the public as much as possible in a decision that affects them very much locally, but certainly globally as well.
there are lots of ways that people can can get involved. You know, I think information really is the key. It's just to try to disseminate, to break through that wall of silence that has surrounded Rocky Flats for decades and help disseminate information about Rocky Flats as much as possible. I understand that there has been the development of symbols along with the activism and that there was a statue that was raised on the site as a commemorative piece and yet there was also in conjunction with that an act of vandalism. Tell us what that's all about. One of the more interesting things that's happened uh, with Rocky Flats in the last few years is there have been a number of artists who have presented their work in such a way that they draw attention to the plant. And uh, one of those artists is Jeff Geith, a remarkable artist in New York. His father worked at Rocky Flats for 20 years. Jeff grew up being very aware of the illnesses and problems faced by Rocky Flats workers. And he decided to embody their concerns in a statue let me see if I can describe it. It's a life-size horse, which is very appropriate because there are lots of horses around Rocky Flats. And in fact, it meant a lot to me personally because my sisters and I spent our teenage years, our childhood, uh, riding our horses around the plant. And of course, many of the horses were contaminated. There was strontium found in the bones of horses just down the road from ours. But at any rate, so it's very appropriate that the horse, the horse is wearing a red hazmat suit and goggles and a respirator. It's quite a dramatic statement and it is meant to represent the concerns of the workers. And then when this course was first exhibited at the Arvada Center for the Arts, I think many local people looked at the horse as also a representation of concerns, you know, of, of citizens, of people who live nearby who also are very concerned about their health. The horse was first um, introduced at the Arvada Center for the Arts, and then a landowner, a local landowner out by Rocky Flats, dedicated some land where the house, where the horse had a permanent home, and the horse was erected in August. There was media coverage, a lot of media coverage. Three days after the horse was set up, it was torn down. Someone came by in the middle of the night in a truck with a chain, and they wrapped a chain around the horse's legs and pulled the whole statue down. And then they took a sledgehammer and smashed it. The artist, of course, uh, was crushed. Um, we had already planned to have a dedication ceremony in October. And what we decided to do, what the artist decided to do, is to go ahead with that ceremony. We're going to go ahead and have the dedication ceremony. There are going to be a number of speakers there. It's going to be a big event. And it's going to be great. And the horse will be rebuilt. It's going to take a little bit of time, but it's certainly the intention of, of the people out there to, to keep that horse standing as a, as a constant and enduring reminder of what happened at that site. It sounds like emotions are still running very high in the area. Now, the state of Colorado had a vision of taking this contaminated land at Rocky Flats and turning it into a wildlife refuge. So with that as their goal, and there's already been a preliminary unveiling of this, what are the ongoing problems that visitors to the site are potentially going to face, and where is the state with the opening of this wildlife refuge? Well, it's very interesting that the state plans to move forward with the opening of the refuge. The Department of Energy sponsored a public poll in 2004 to see how local residents felt 
about whether or not this site should be open to the public. 81% of people who responded said no, <laughs> quite emphatically. We don't think this is a good idea. Let's keep it closed. Nonetheless, the Department of Energy moved forward. Eventually, a large portion of the site, and this is, this is a 6,000-acre site. It's, it's big. Um, most of it was transferred to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 1,300 acres are so profoundly contaminated that they can never open, ever, to the public. But the rest of the site they'd like to open for uh, hiking and biking, and at one point they were even talking about hunting, even though the deer population out there, plutonium has been found in a uh, percentage of the bodies of deer. So they didn't pursue that line of thinking, but it is slated to open for hiking and biking. And I, I just wanted to talk a little bit specifically about the contamination that remains on site. And I'm not talking about that 1,300 acres that was the core plutonium processing industrial part of the plan. I'm talking about, you know, the broader area that will be open for hiking and biking and school groups and all that sort of thing. We have very controversial levels of remaining contamination in the soil. The top three feet of soil, we're allowing up to 50 picocuries per gram of soil. For three to six feet, it's much higher than that. Uh, up to, I believe, up to 1,000 picocuries per gram of soil. And then below six feet, there is no limit. And what you have to think about is that of the 800-plus buildings out at Rocky Flats, most of the material, the radioactive plutonium in particular, material moved between buildings was moved underground in piping. And a lot of that stuff remains. There were some buildings that were partially underground. Many of those buildings were not taken off the site. They were imploded and buried. There's just still a lot of stuff out there. And studies have shown that, you know, in addition to the weather and the erosion and everything that we talked about, plutonium does not stay put. One study showed how groundhogs were busy, and there are a lot of groundhogs out there. Anyone who's ridden a horse around that area, you know what a problem the groundhog, the groundhog holes are. Uh, those groundhogs are quite busy digging down and burrowing down into the soil, bringing material up to the surface. There are deer and animals, you know, all sorts of animals. You know, it's, it's a system, an ecosystem that's constantly in movement, and, and the birds don't know that they shouldn't pick something up on one site and you know, they don't recognize that barbed wire fence that separates the site, you know, from the site to the houses right next door. Deer moves through the property. It's just an entire system completely in motion, regardless of big weather events. And, of course, we have lots of big weather events out there. This is so similar to what happened here in Southern California at the site of the Santa Susana Field Lab which is where in 1959 there was a partial meltdown of an experimental reactor on Rocketdyne property. And that is a big rock climbing area. It is a hiking area. It's very dusty, so the wind picks up the dust and blows it around. And now the last core bit of the Santa Susana Field Lab, they are in the process of creating that as an outdoor wilderness, hiking, biking, climbing, etc. wilderness area as part of the Santa Monica Mountains Corridor. So it seems like when an area is too contaminated to be built upon or to be used for other purposes, they go, well, let people traipse through it at their own risk or at their own choice and let the animals do what they will and turn our back on it. 
So it sounds like what's happening at Rocky Flats and what's happening in my own neighborhood is of a piece. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And I think that one of the problems with the wildlife refuge and that sort of thing is, is that they base exposure levels on a part-time seasonal refuge worker. Uh, or at least that's what they did at Rocky Flats. They didn't look at, okay, let's consider a five-year-old child who grows up on this land, who spends most of her early years, or a baby, you know, people living on the site or near the site 24-7, people working there, people living there. They looked at, I believe, a 25-year-old male who would be a part-time seasonal refuge worker. And then that's what they looked at in terms of potential risk. It's just not uh, rational. <laughs> it's just not rational. And uh, I think one thing that happens with these wildlife refuges is that it puts, it puts a happy face on a very unhappy situation. If people go on Google and look for images or stories about Rocky Flats, what they're going to find from the Department of Energy and from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are pictures of butterflies and deer and flowers. They're not going to see pictures of the industrial core or maps of uh, the sites, the contaminated areas that remain, the areas that are capped where material was not removed off-site, but they just put caps on the soil, over the soil, which, by the way, I should mention, in that flood from two years ago, one of those caps cracked and uh, was open for quite a period of time. You're not going to find pictures like that. You're going to find you know, <laughs> butterflies, and it's not a true representation of, of what's happening at the site. So is the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge a done deal, or is there still some way to stop it? Is there any kind of action that can be taken, and if so, how can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat support this? What is a done deal? And this, I think, is a very sad situation. What's a done deal is the cleanup or, quote-unquote, cover-up, as some people call it. You know, they're not going to go back and clean up what they didn't clean up before. That's done. And it really was a very uh, inadequate job. So now the question is, where do we go from here? In terms of the refuge opening to the public, the refuge itself is a done deal. But in terms of whether or not that refuge should open to the public, is not quite yet a done deal. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has delayed opening the site, they say, because of funding issues. I think there may be some other issues at stake as well. And the more people are aware and the more they speak up on Twitter and Facebook and web pages and emailing Congress people and, and all that sort of thing, you know, all of that makes a difference. And I think it can make a difference with respect to the site. I mean, I think all the way back to Governor Roy Romer, who was the governor of Colorado uh, when the FBI raid happened, which was even a surprise to him <laughs> at the time. It was so secretive. And uh, one thing he said is he said he had mixed feelings about Rocky Flats, but he said if people don't say anything, we can't do anything in Washington. I can't do anything in Washington. So I think it's very important for people to educate themselves and, and get involved. And I hope, I sincerely hope that it's not too late. I just really hope that we can kind of come to our senses on this and keep this site closed and put some signs up and let people know what happened. And then if people choose to buy houses out in that area, that's fine. It's a beautiful area. But they should be aware of any potential risk, you know, to themselves or to their dogs or most of all to their children. 
And what has the media support been like in your area, in Boulder, in Denver, and closer to Rocky Flats? Well, it's been mixed. Uh, you know, there are some radio stations, some television stations that are paying attention. Certainly, when the horse came down, uh, because the horse so quickly became a prominent symbol out there, and then it was so quickly destroyed that the Denver media did pay attention to that. But I think for the most part, and this may be simply because Colorado and Denver is very pro-growth, very pro-development, and, and Denver is, is a booming area right now. So I think people tend to kind of look the other way. One thing that's been interesting to me, and I've been on the road now for almost three years, talking about Rocky Flats and talking about my book, when I speak in other parts of the country or even other parts of the world, let's say London or Edinburgh or um, even a place like San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, people in other places know more about Rocky Flats than people in Colorado. And that is so stunning to me. I can do a, a lecture in I don't know, Anglewood or something like that. And, you know, it's a surprise. The last time I was in Boulder, I asked the clerk, well, I was talking to the clerk at the front desk, and he said, you know, why are you here? And I said, I'm talking about Rocky Flats. And he was maybe in his early 30s and grew up in the area and had never heard of it, had never heard of Rocky Flats. So right in Colorado, we've got our blinders on quite firmly. Kristen Iverson, it is always a pleasure to have you here, and thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. That was Kristen Iverson, author of Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats. Activist shout-out. You're all doing a great job. I love all of you. Here's today's final thought. Is there a change in the wind? It seems that the whole nuclear facade is breaking down faster than the reactors themselves, which are falling apart in clusters. People, the general public, seems to be noticing. That includes the media. Two, count them, two NBC stations in Southern California this week simultaneously broke out hard-hitting investigative reports on nuclear situations that usually get ignored, waste handling at San Onofre near San Clemente, and the Santa Susana Field Lab accident of 1959, which happened just north of Los Angeles. Then there are reports about that five-year-old underground fire smoldering in a St. Louis area waste dump that's creeping towards an area where radioactive waste is known to be buried, and major TV stations in the area are covering it. Then we learn that a Michigan senator has gone to the cabinet, all the way up to Secretary of State John Kerry, to put pressure on the U.S.'s traditional international nuclear nemesis, Canada. Our Secretary of State has been asked to get Canada to bail on the proposed Lake Huron Beachfront Nuclear Waste Repository. People are starting to get upset by nuclear issues all over the place. And by that, I mean people besides the hardcore activists who have fought the good fight for so many years, so many decades. Other people, normal people, powerful people, people with the ability to make change, are waking up. And while we can't say that they smell the radiation, they're becoming aware that silently, invisibly, it's there and it is corrupting our lives and our futures.
I don't know. Maybe it's the presidential election cycle and the hope that's being engendered by Bernie Sanders, including his history of being against nukes. Maybe it's that the Pope is predicted to be preparing a statement asking for the banning of nuclear weapons. Maybe it's just that under the apocalyptic pressure of so many things going wrong with our planet, those people who aren't going crazy are going sane. Whatever, despite the fact that plutonium's half-life is 24,000 years, and even Fukushima's cesium and strontium will be with us and dangerous for at least another 200-plus years, I find myself cautiously hopeful. Everywhere I go, when people learn of the work I do, there's been a shift. Instead of making a face and an excuse, or not, or glazing over and walking away, they lean in, ask questions, want to know more. The New York Times' short-sightedness notwithstanding, might we have already broken the logjam around our information, our visibility? Might anti-nukers be in the ascendancy? If whoever becomes our next president is against nukes, is it possible soon that we might see as Secretary of Energy Arnie Gunderson or Bob Alvarez? Maybe the impossible isn't so impossible anymore. You know, we don't know. I don't know. But it's tempting just now to drop the self-defensive assumptions and despair and shell shock that so many of us go through, that I go through, and believe that maybe, just maybe, we have turned an important corner, and that even though what we're dealing with here is nuclear, things may be looking up. Then again, it may just be my Facebook feed. Whatever. I'll let you know as soon as I figure it out. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 22, 2015. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, TEPCO, FukushimaDiary.com, and our friend Iori Mochizuki, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NBC5 Los Angeles, NBC7 San Diego, EcoReport, TrueActivist.com, AlJazeera.com, Washingtonian.com, GodlikeProductions.com, Detroit.CBSLocal.com, Beyond Nuclear, Syracuse.com, CBSNews.com, AP, NewYorkTimes.com, EnviroReporter.com, MLive.com, HuffingtonPost.ca, LFPress.com. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds.com, JapanTimes.com, ibtimes.co.uk, motherboard.vice.com, counterpunch.org, and the energetic, totally supportive Nuclear Hot Seat community on Facebook, which you, yes you, are all invited to join. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompanied by John Barnard. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.tv and is also available on iTunes under podcasts. Our archive is available, well, it will be on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. Right now, you can get it on iTunes or on our YouTube channel, Nuclear Hot Seat Videos. 
Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2015, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.